I'm rounding the corner this morning in the final moments of leaving the house. Hurrying the kids who dawdle and drop things and squabble about something or other and why is it like this every stupid morning? My cup of tea, the only still thing in my day. Sitting untouched on the kitchen bench, the steam rising from it in the morning sun, a shy little dance partner to its smoky shadow, dancing sensuously on the wall behind it. But here I am now, coming around the corner half backwards and pointing my keys at the car, right in the middle of shouting, Hats on heads, please. In you get, everyone. When I look up and everything stops. Oh, no. I hear myself say, oh, no. The kids fall silent behind me and we stand, the three of us, on the footpath. There's an ambulance, no, one ambulance and one of those intensive care cars out the front of Alan's house. Alan, our friend and neighbour, usually out the front of his house, shirtless, watering his garden, saying, Hello. And instructing us on the vagaries of rubbish disposal regulation. I think immediately of Susanna, the woman with the animals from over the road, who has been asking me for weeks if Alan is okay, and is Alan okay? The doors of the ambulance are hanging open, sirens off, but lights flashing red and blue. Why didn't we hear the sirens? I feel myself thinking, as though that would have somehow changed things. What happened? Says Gail from over the road, who is suddenly next to me, her hand over her mouth. I don't know, I say, and my children have edged closer to me, looking up at Gail, who... Used to live in such a lovely street in Brighton. And who now says... Well, I certainly hope everything's okay. In a way that makes me feel like if everything isn't okay, it will have to answer to Gail. She moves forward, saying... I'll go and ask the gentleman. I talk to the kids answering their questions, ushering them into the car, wondering what to do exactly. Gail speaks with the young paramedic hovering near the little car. After a while, she starts entering something into her phone, which she holds at a distance like she's taking a selfie. The paramedic looks over her shoulder, reaching his finger across to correct something on her screen. The gesture seems intimate, like they're on holiday together, posing for Instagram. The kids are all buckled up and when I turn, Gail is striding towards me. I keep the door half closed so she can't see the mess inside. He's had a bit of a turn, she says to me kindly, in a way that makes me conscious of the generational difference between us. Taking him in overnight, they think. Nothing too serious. Although apparently he has pneumonia, which is never great news. Nevertheless, I've been assured that there is nothing we can do, she says. I do have a number to call this afternoon, so we can find out what room he's in. I was thinking we could all chip in and buy a nice bunch of something. Oh. She says to me, looking at the scruffy car. No obligation, of course. I stand half in, half out of the car door, exchanging numbers with Gail. 
I have to tell her my name again, which she pretends to have... Just on the tip of my tongue. I reverse the car just as two more paramedics emerge from Alan's house, carrying out a stretcher covered in impossibly white hospital blankets. Is he okay, Mum? I look in the rear vision mirror. A paramedic writes something into a thick book. She checks her watch and then writes something else, leaning back on the car in such a casual, unpanicked way that I feel a rush of gratitude for these bored professionals whose work has them nonchalantly rescuing people all over town. I talk to the kids for a bit as we drive until we fall into silence. I think of some things I love. I love paramedics and how society is organised to ensure that I don't have to perform brain surgery or design bridges or play the cello on the understanding that I can trust someone else whom I've never met to do all of these things on my behalf. I love early morning magpie warbles and pauses in music that go for just a little bit longer than your brain is set aside for them and so you come in early in full voice like a gleeful idiot. I love to-do lists and passion fruit icing and paramedics and people who look good in hats and the statistical impossibility of each person's existence and paperbark and the word nook and the concept of a nook and the reality of nookery generally and the complicated simplicity of the watermelon and gale from over the road and marmalade and paramedics and paramedics and you. The kids are quiet in the back, and all of us, in our own way, I'm pretty sure, are thinking of Alan. Later, having dropped the toddler with a grandparent, feeling the silence fill the car like a fog, I pull into the street again and find it deserted. The ambulances have gone, Gale has gone, even the pigeons are nowhere to be seen. I wonder if I should go and alert the woman with the bird aviary, Susanna, who often asks about Alan and who seems, now that I think about it, to have predicted the disintegration of his health over recent weeks. What is etiquette here, though, and what is gossip seems fuzzy to me suddenly, to say nothing of the fact that Susanna is, or has been for the past six years at least, as Gail says, a bit of a shut-in, and I dare not knock on her door. As I'm getting out of the car, a white van pulls noisily into a spot outside Susanna's house. I don't think much of it at first, but then a man leaps from it onto the footpath in front of me. Morning, he says, smiling. He scratches his pot belly with his car keys and gestures at Susanna's house with his head. She home? And what am I supposed to say? I don't know much about Susanna, with whom I have had a grand total of three conversations, but... I sense that on the list of things she values in the world, privacy would be in the top three. I'm a friend. He says. I'm picking her up for an animal rescue. He says. I think she's out. I lie, because she is never out. He squints at me. I'm Finn. He says, thrusting his hand towards me. We shake, and his face is kind. Do you know Suze? He asks, and I mutter that I've only met her recently. The nickname shocks me for some reason. Robs her of some of her wry elegance. 
suggests a side to her very much at odds with the one I know. He says... So glad she's been out and about again. It's been a while this time. I ask him what an animal rescue involves. Bit of a tour. He says... Picking up the abandoned and at risk. They love her, of course. The animals, I mean. It's people she likes to avoid. And maybe we neighbours have designed a mythology for this woman that doesn't quite capture her depth. He's looking at me. Listen. He says. Has she talked to you about her brother at all? This person, obviously, has no idea Susanna is most probably inside the house right at this second, listening to every word he's saying. She has mentioned her brother? I say quietly. Terrible business. He says, and then straightens up. But good. That's what I was hoping. His phone is ringing in his shorts pocket. He does a slightly performative sideways bend and takes the call. Sues, he says, bugs his eyes at me and points at the phone. Gotcha. Right. No worries. Uh, uh, yep. See you soon. That's fine. OK, bye. He puts the phone back in his pocket. On her way. Went to Vic Market to buy some crickets to feed to the lizard. And we can't help it now. We're smiling together, looking down at our feet. A bit of an unusual neighbour, I'm guessing. He says. She seems like a very nice person, I say. And it's like he's been waiting to endorse her. He looks at me earnestly. She's the best. The very best. He leans closer. His candour is making me nervous. I mean, after all that with her brother and she stopped working and came to live here and all that, a few little organisations like ours. We all got large donations. Real big ones. I can see her coming around the corner now in the distance behind him, lumbering up the street, lugging a couple of canvas bags. The donations were from her, I ask him. Not for me to say. He says. Hang on. Did she give all her money away? Could that be true? Why? But I'll never know, because here's Susanna coming up behind him, smiling and a tiny bit puffed, apologising for being late. Her canvas bags are full of leftover meat for the animals, which she has sourced from all over Fitzroy, she tells us free of charge. I see you've met, she says, and she's grinning, but her eyes dart between us and I say, oh, just then actually, I came to tell you about Alan. Her face drops. She lowers the bags to the ground without taking her eyes off me. No, 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 he's all right, I tell her, and I fill her in on the morning. Pneumonia, she says, her hand to her mouth. I tell her I've put her name on the flowers Gail's organising, which I fully intend to be the case once I actually speak to Gail, and she says... Yes. Shall I get your number? She is rearranging something in one of the bags as she says it, and Finn and I share the briefest of looks. She taps my number into her cracked old phone, not needing to be told my name, and as I leave, Finn is gently placing her bags into the back of his van. Heading back to the house, I wonder... Well, I wonder pretty much everything about Susanna, including how well she knows Alan, who I imagine now sitting up in a hospital bed across town, irritable and incredulous, while doctors and nurses take, bless their cotton socks, all the necessary precautions for a man in his 80s with pneumonia who has spent most of his time outdoors 
shouting happily at his neighbours in the street. Later, in the rapidly depleting window of time I have left before I have to go and pick the toddler up, I head out for a quick run. The street is empty now, all of the drama happening instead in the sky. Clouds, dark and low, are cantering at breakneck speed across the warm blue from this morning, and I experience a brief moment of confusion at what I eventually realise is a giant pink inflatable number two, cartwheeling through the sky towards the city. I jog towards the Carlton Gardens. I'm thinking of things I love. I love running in the rain and how when rain hits your shoulders it makes you feel like an athlete training heroically in the Andes, but rain hitting your face makes you feel like a blinking, buck-toothed, squinting fool in an unfair fight against a quietly vengeful universe. I love the handwritten notes stuck on the fence in Gertrude Street with a phone number on it that says, We have your leather jacket! And the weird colours and shapes in native Australian gardens like soft blues and deep oranges and red spiky things that look like a warning. And I love the little cues about another person you can find in a half-finished word puzzle in a folded-over newspaper left on a cafe table. And I love dog devotion and cat indifference and the expression one-upmanship and how Thor was the god of thunder and also of oak trees. And I love other people's picnics and going for a run and you. I'm at home in the evening, finishing tomorrow's school lunch, when there are three short knocks at the front door. I glance at the time. 10.15. Max is in the shower, so as I pad down the hall in my bare feet, I call out, Hello? And then a woman's voice says, It's me. Which confuses me further, but I open the door and there's Susanna. Her head is tilted sideways in a gesture I read as self-consciousness. I start to speak, but... It's Alan, she says. She has news of Alan. Oh, I say, is he home already? Gail hasn't... He died. She's holding her phone up in the air. I just got off the phone. He... They don't think... Tears bulge in her eyes. She looks down. When she looks up again, she swipes crossly at her cheeks and laughs. I feel so sad. I've known him since I was... Anyway... She gestures at the kitchen sponge in my hand. I didn't mean to. I just... I, I thought you'd like to know. I give her a hug then. I have to reach up a bit to hug her, and I'm aware of my cold kitchen sponge against the back of her neck. Over her shoulder, I see Gail, who... Used to live in such a lovely street in Brighton. But who is coming towards us now with her slow walk, holding, I can't help but noticing, a bottle of whiskey in one hand and some glasses in the other. You've heard? She says, and we turn towards her. I try to stop focusing on whether or not Gail is a whiskey drinker or has gone off the map for an Ellen-related reason. I spoke to Phil, his brother, says Susanna. Gail nods. 
I saw you both out here. I thought I'd bring something out to mark the occasion. He was a feature of the neighbourhood. Of that, there can be no doubt, says Gail, in a way that could be a compliment and could be a devastating takedown. She thrusts the glasses towards us. I thought perhaps a toast. Did you find out from the hospital? I ask her, and she smiles at me. Greg, she says, as though it speaks for itself, which it does. Greg knows everything. She looks at Susanna. Well, she says, almost everything. And she smiles. And so does Susanna. And good grief, this is a weird little social occasion, isn't it? But here we are, standing in the street, under the yellow light, looking towards old Ellen's house, holding our glasses for Gail, who fills them far too generously. She nods at Susanna in a way that makes it clear Susanna is in charge of the toast. For Susanna clears her throat, looks at his empty house. <coughs> Bloody hell, Ellen, says Susanna, a laugh beneath her wobbly voice. You've undone me tonight, you really have. She pauses, takes on a slightly formal stance. Thank you for looking after us, Alan. She says. Thank you for shouting at us when it was bin night, I say. Gail shifts beside me. Thank you for your lovely roses, she says. And when Susanna speaks again, her voice is clear and strong and full of humour. Thanks for the history lessons and the lectures and the far too personal questions. Innocently asked. There's something about the way she says innocently asked that makes me and Gail turn to look at her. Surprised, maybe, at her slightly formal turn of phrase, her confident generosity, her eloquence. If she notices, she doesn't let on. And here's to that terrible lawn you were always watering, right through the stage three water restrictions. She smiles sideways at us as we giggle. <laughs> Dreadful scallywag. And we raise our glasses to the sky. To Alan, she says. And we look at his house. So much a part of who Alan is that it barely seems possible that it can exist without him. We stand together, the three of us, in the street in Fitzroy where Alan spent every year of his long, gentle life. The street light casts a sharp, angular shadow across the front of his place, a lonely spotlight for his favourite empty chair. To, to Alan, we say, and sip from our glasses, the whisky warm and sharp. Gail pats Susanna on the arm. Lovely, she says. And we stand like that together for... I don't know how long, and Alan, whatever else he might have done in his life, has brought us together in silence. In the distance, a siren wails. Paramedics, watching the streets of Fitzroy, pass them by on their way to the next job. <laughs>